So let me just say this again. My name is Kyle, if you don't know who I am, and this is Uplift. I am so glad that you are here. We are in a series here at Uplift called Christ We Proclaim, and it's from Colossians chapter 1. By the way, this series is also going to be streamed on Sunday mornings for the conversation, so if you're watching us on Sundays, glad you're here. You can say hi in the chat. The title of this series is taken from Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, and as is our custom, let's read this out loud together. Let me hear you. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Tonight is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And there are, personal information, few passages in the Bible that mean as much to me as tonight's. So we're going to spend some time in the next few moments in what I consider to be the most, one of the most beautiful and poetic sections in all the Bible. Let's read it. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. And he is the firstborn from among the dead, so that in all things he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. I memorized this passage in its entirety in a very, very challenging season in my life. And I did that because I just needed it with me. I just needed to be able to recall it whenever I needed it. It appealed to me in this really, really hard season in a season where I needed some really concrete answers, something solid. And this passage still does. It still, it still moves me because it moves far beyond simple ethics or behavior modification. It speaks to reality. It defines reality. It makes reality makes, make sense. It, it challenges preconceptions. And I, I like that. And I, I think you probably like that. I think you probably like preconceptions to be challenged. Here, here's why I like it, and it's probably why you, you like it. Many of us, I think, have probably experienced some fundamentalist church environments where hard questions weren't meant to be asked. And if they were, pat answers were dispensed with nothing more than wit or threat but rarely with certainty and humility. This passage cuts right through all of that in a decisive way, and it offers clear answers, clear answers to life's most pressing question. Let me say that again. This passage provides answers to the questions that we need answered. The great catalyst in learning, you know this, is actually knowing the right questions to ask and then asking them. Because questions generate context. 
Questions give us the strategic framework to live and to move and to have our being. And you want to know who asks great questions? You probably know this. Kids. Kids ask great questions. They have the art of asking great questions down. One of my daughters asked me, this is years ago, I'm not going to tell you which one. She was maybe four years old. It was in a very inquisitive moment. She asked me this really simple, direct question. She said this. She said, Daddy, I'm a little confused. How can I let Jesus in my heart if my heart has no door? I had no idea how to answer that question. What a great question. Research actually shows that parents estimate that up to 80% of the conversations with their kids are comprised of questions. But here's the, here's the catch. The same research says that adult-to-adult conversations have a much smaller percentage of questions, around 15%. We've actually lost the inquisitiveness of childhood. We've lost it. And rightly so. This is not a guilt trip. Life's hard. We're busy at doing the things that we have to do. And we don't really have time for the big, tough questions anymore. When I taught university history classes, I did that for a long time, taught 8 o'clock in the morning World Civ classes. That's a hard thing to do. I always began the first day of lecture for the semester with this one question. Very first thing I ask, why are you here? Why are you here? And that question has a dual edge, right? Because it has both a physical answer and an existential answer, right? So the physical answer, physically, the students could figure that one out. They were in class to make a passing grade in World Civ, right? But existentially, students had no clue. They didn't even know what was happening. They didn't even know why that question was being asked. It was hard for me to ask it, and it was hard for them to answer. In fact, that question, why are you here, asks something really integral. It asks for truth, for clarification. And did you know this, that asking what truth is, is considered by philosophers to be the toughest question to answer in the world. Because that question begs for something solid. Get weasel out of it. It asks what you know and how you know it. And, and here's, the, here's the distinction, right? Scientists believe that truth is found in facts and reality. Make a decision, there it is. And that the scientific method is the best way to determine those facts. You, get, you ask questions, you get answers, those answers are truth. They are truthful. But philosophers actually disagree with that on the uh, they disagree on the assumption and the collection of truth. I've got some names of some philosophers I want to show you. You can Google these guys later. One of the more prominent philosophers is a guy named David Hume, and he was an 18th century philosopher. You might not know who he is, but the way that he thought about thinking actually still influences us. He wrote a book called An Inquiry of Concerning Human Understanding. And this is what he argued in the 1700s, that inductive logic actually has limits. What that actually means is that not everything, not everything can be observed and recorded. That's one. Let me show you another one. This is Immanuel Kant. You can Google him a little bit later. He's another 18th century philosopher. He made the still important claim, you know this, that truth can't be known, reality can't be known, because perception becomes reality. You've heard that, right? That perception becomes truth. We still, we still use that phrase. And we all know that observations change what we observe, that observing changes 
the observed. This is actually, let me show you this. This is called the Heisenberg Principle. You've probably seen this. If not, you can Google it later. This was articulated by German physicist in 1927, Werner Heisenberg. And the Heisenberg Principle, it was really scientific, but here's kind of the point. It states that there is a built-in amount of uncertainty when you analyze something. And that uncertainty that's there is actually because of our involvement in the observation. In other words, our very presence changes an outcome. So any absolution of the observed can never really be truly known. And we can add to this parade of philosophy with what we've all collectively observed the past couple of years. We've seen the limits in real time of perceived truth, of spoken truth. We've lost trust in systems and data and science and reporting where we thought, those places where we thought truth could be found, we've, we, it's kind of lacking now. We can't really find it. We, we find ourselves in a really peculiar place here in 2022 where truth is really a garage sale commodity. It's secondhand information. It's passed through too many hands now to even be trusted. So when we read from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19 or 15 through 20, and we hear its claims on truth, we hear things that we, that we believe are real, we are now in a weird state where we also hear the whispers of Satan when we read a passage like this. This is what we hear. Don't, don't listen to this. It's not real. Truth can't be known. Truth, it's what you make of it, Right? Reality is what you want it to be. You hear this. Speak your truth. These deceptive statements that we've almost been trained to hear, to doubt everything, actually make a mockery of what Colossians chapter 1 actually claims and states. It's rock solid truth. And here's, let me just ask you a question. What else compares to the passage that we read earlier? What else compares to this? What other religious belief makes the claims that Colossians chapter one does? None of them, not one of them. So for the next few moments, I wanna unpack each of these truths of this passage by allowing this passage to answer the questions that we all want answered. The big questions, the questions about life, and reality, and substance. But I gotta warn you right now that the truth, the unmitigated truth, makes no concessions, all right? It does not take your feelings into account. It doesn't take your prior knowledge into account. It doesn't apologize, and it doesn't appease. Your opinions do not change the truth. The truth just might make you uncomfortable. But the very things that make us uncomfortable about truth also make it intoxicating. You can't get enough of it. You realize after you see the truth that it is the answer to every paradigm in your life and you can't escape it. You're probably going to find your reaction to the next few moments somewhat how Jeremiah reacted to God. This is from Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah did exactly as the Lord said, told him to do go to the steps of the temple and preach. When he did that, he was arrested and humiliated publicly. He prayed. This was the first sentence of his prayer. While he's in chains, by the way, it's from Jeremiah chapter 20, verse seven. Lord, you've deceived me and I was deceived. You're stronger than I and you've prevailed. 
I've become a laughing stock all the day. Everyone mocks me. Other translations say this at the very first part of this phrase, Lord, you've seduced me. And I was seduced. That's a hard thing to say. It's a prayer we pray. Yet a couple sentences later, sentences later, Jeremiah says this in verse 9. You've heard this before. If I say Jeremiah is praying in chains, I will not mention him or speak of his name. There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. In other words, the truth hurts, but it can't be contained. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the truth, and we're going to answer the questions that we've all want answered. I'm going to tell you there are six of them. We're going to move quickly, but there are six questions here. So you got them. If you're taking notes, here they are. Here's the first question. First, who is Jesus? Well, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 gives us the answer. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the God who's never been seen, the God of creation and the God of covenant. Jesus is the primary mode through which God chose to reveal himself and thus is the perfection of the very nature and character of God. Jesus is the vehicle for God's revelation in all creation. He is the image of God. That's the first question. Here's question number two. What is Jesus's role in creation? What is his role? Well, this, this comes to us from chapter one, verses 15 and 16. I've kind of paraphrased a little bit. Let me show you this. He's the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Jesus is the source of all created things. Very simple. All things. The entire universe, the cosmos, every living creation, though created by God, owes its existence to Jesus. The things we see, the things we can't see, this includes distant planets in deep space. It includes molecules and genes and atoms. It includes boring historical events, the snow on top of Mount Everest, the creatures that swim in the unreachable parts of the ocean. It includes every generous person and every hardened criminal. All things, all things are created by God through Jesus. Nothing, no one, exists for its own sake. Everything exists for the sake of Jesus and for his glory. Everything in all creation screams, look at Jesus. Now, you probably picked up on this because this is when the truth starts making us squirm a little bit, makes us a little uncomfortable. Let's break this down. Included in all things are all powers. It's right here in the passage. And they're listed here in four separate words. Let me show you what they are. Thrones, powers, rulers, and authorities. This verse is a stunning admission because these powers, Paul didn't have to list it, but he did. These powers are able to separate humanity from God. Even in Ephesians, we know this, Ephesians, Paul wrote that our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the rulers 
and the authorities, dark, evil, spiritual forces with intentions to hurt and maim were created by Jesus and for Jesus, right? Harmful, seductive, oppressive powers were created by Jesus and for Jesus. Now, I've told you, it's going to get uncomfortable. It probably is right now because this is a little uncomfortable, but it does immediately provide some answers for us. We wonder why there are oppressive forces in the world, but here's the answer. They're there because they're created to be there. They are allowed to have their existence. They are created for Jesus. But I don't want you to overlook the next phrase, right? They are created for Jesus, by Jesus and for Jesus. Now, I want you to note before we keep going, I want you to note this, that Jesus's supremacy and his triumph are not threatened by these powers. Nothing threatens the supremacy of Jesus. He has enemies, he has no rivals. They were, though, created for Jesus. Is there a deeper purpose here? Yes, there is. And I'm going to find, I'm going to tell you how, how we know this. We find out what the deeper purpose is and why they were created in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. And if you have real Bibles, I would encourage you to underline these verses, but I think we have it on the screen. Look at this. Colossians 2, verse 15. Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. They were created for Jesus to be defeated by Jesus. Their creation is solely to be whipped. And that serves to enhance the glory of Jesus. So whatever stands in opposite, let me say this in a better way, whatever seems to stand in opposition to Jesus only and ultimately serves to exalt him. And though these forces may still do us much harm, they do so only by the allowance of Jesus. We're going to talk about this in just a minute. But they are within his allowance because he knows our victory in these circumstances. It's already done. It's already done. How do I know this? Well, it's because of the next phrase. So the question here is, what is Jesus's current role? Well, here's how we know this. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. He holds everything together, the entirety of creation. He keeps it from falling into chaos. Jesus is the logic of the universe. If Jesus were to relinquish control, the entire creation would absolutely disintegrate. What's also special here, but not immediately seen, is this verb, hold together, right? In the original language of this letter, this verb is actually written in something called the perfect tense. We talked about that here at Uplift. One small word has serious implications. So if we translated it without thought of space or words, it would read like this. I've actually got a slide for you. Jesus is before all things, and in him all things held together. In him all things are holding together. And in him all things will forever be held together. Nothing, not one thing in all of history, good or evil, has escaped his sovereignty. Before this makes us a little shaky, we have to remember a couple of things, all right? This, these are big. Number one, it was Jesus who suffered. It was Jesus who was murdered by an empire. The suffering 
of Jesus happen because he allowed it to. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. The guy who wrote this letter, who wrote these phrases, Paul, wrote them from a jail cell. Paul knew full well that his own personal suffering was authorized by Jesus. And though the truth of this is hard to hear, how much loss have we experienced? I've experienced it. It's no less real. We will suffer too under the allowance of Jesus with a blessed assurance that we will still one day stand triumphant. Here's the next question. What's the relationship between Jesus and his followers today? We get it right from this passage. He is the head of the body, the church. This is kind of interesting. In earlier letters written by Paul, Paul actually thought of the church as a gathering of believers in various geographical locations and houses and cities. But here in Colossians, it's written a little different. He sees the church as the the global church, all believers throughout time and space and history. Jesus is the head of this church. The same person, supreme over all creation, is supreme over the church. This is a sure affirmation that the church, us, we hold a crucial position in the redemptive plan of God. Salvation can be found in the gospel that a church preaches. This church, it's part of all things created by, through, and for Jesus It is this church that reflects his glory. Let's keep going. Here's the next question. Where's Jesus now? We're going to let the text continue to speak. Listen to this. He's the firstborn from among the dead so that in all things he might have supremacy. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Jesus is not only the firstborn of all creation. Paul wrote that a little earlier. He's also the firstborn from among the dead. He is the founder of a new humanity. His resurrection ushered a new order into reality. It's an order that stripped the darkness of the power that it once held over all creation. That power threatened humans with death and kept them dead. Let's read this. This is from an earlier statement made by Paul from Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This deliverance, it can only happen because all of God's fullness dwelled in Jesus, thus producing this resurrection. I want you to think about that. All of God's love and his mercy and his justice and his wisdom and his glory and his power all resided in Jesus. He was the vessel of flesh and muscle, and bones that contained all of God, every bit of it. So as resurrected, Jesus's human body still contained all of God. He's not some spirit. He's not some ghost. He's not an idea. He's a human right now, and he is alive right now. We know this from Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. Let's look at this. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, dwells, present tense, right now. Right now, Jesus is alive, filled to the full with all of God. So right now, this minute, he is a living human with skin and muscle and bones and blood. But here's the cool thing. He stands in the presence of God without being 
destroyed. And it's a thought that exceeds our ability to even comprehend what that is. That's why it's so amazing. Here's the last question, and maybe the biggest one. Why does all this matter to me? What's the point? Well, here it is. This is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. There was a breach. There was a rupture between all things and God. All of life, all of history was out of order. But by the resurrection of Jesus, the crucified God brought back to life, the rupture has been sutured. And all of creation has been brought back into its divinely intended order. And I want you to notice something here, that this reconciliation, it's been imposed. Nothing can resist this. And the weapon of this alignment is the cross. Paul usually referred to Jesus' blood in his other letters in the context of a necessary sacrifice. And he usually referred to Jesus' death on the cross as a shameful thing. But here it's different. That's why I love this passage. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, the way that it's written is that Paul referred to the cross as the weapon of a conqueror, as a weapon. Things needed to be subdued. Wrath had to be spent. All of the disharmonies of the universe, death, pain, separation, and sin, they've been resolved. And this matters to you because now there is peace between you and God. The wrath, it was meant for you. It was meant for me. God did not politely view this separation as a minor breach of contract. He viewed it as hostile. So with the cross as his weapon, God imposed justice through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. You know what this is? We got another word for this. It's grace. It's grace for you. And it's grace for me. And it's the truth.